This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. Hello, you're listening to Lex Kibernetica, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem Cybersecurity Research Center's podcast. I'm your host, Ido Kenan, and today we'll be talking about the human factor of cybercrime. Studying why some people become hacking victims and others don't can help make people safer. Likewise, learning why hackers hack can help find ways to deter them from their malicious activities. The latter are harder to study, says our next guest. My name is uh, Rutger Leukveld. I work for the NSCR, which is the Netherlands Institute for the Study of Crime and Law Enforcement. And there I'm the coordinator of the cybercrime cluster. And I also work at the Hague University of Applied Sciences, and there I lead a research group into uh, research on cybersecurity and small and medium enterprises. There are two sides. There are the attackers and there are the attacked people. How is each side defined? When people talk about cybercrime and cybersecurity, they usually picture something very technical. Of course, technology plays a big part in cyber attacks. However, the human factor should not be underestimated. And by human factor, as you already said, we're talking about the attacker, which is a human who makes decisions. But we're also talking about people that willingly or unwillingly are cooperating with crimes. And we're talking about people that are a victim of the crimes. From a victim perspective, it's pretty clear, of course, because you have individuals that become a victim and you get organizations that become a victim and you can study them. We try to find out why certain people become victim and others not. It has to do something with their personal characteristics or with the things that they do online or do they have risky behavior online or not. So if we know more about that, then we can find ways to protect people. On the other hand, you've got the criminals, which are very important, but it's a much harder subject to study because they tend to not want to talk. But it's also very important that criminologists try to gain more insight because if you understand the ways cyber criminals think and act and whether or not they have business models and how these business models look like, they can actually build interventions to make it harder for criminals to attack people. Do hackers learn from each other? Yeah, especially the hacking community is very known to share all sorts of new tech methods, either for free or it's a business model. Uh, For example, if you develop a new type of malware, you first use it yourself. And after you see that it's successful, you try to sell it to others who are not able to build a malware yourself. So what we see online is that you've got lots of meeting places where criminals and non-criminals and people in the gray area uh, meet and interact and discuss all sorts of ways to either build cool software or build malicious software or something in between. So there's a lot of knowledge being shared amongst criminals, but also amongst people that don't do any criminal uh, themselves but might develop some interesting tools that can be used by criminals. Can you tell me about how you take the scientific information and data and analysis and turn it into something that people can actually use in the real world? I actually work for two organizations, as I mentioned. I work for NSCR is a research institute and we only do fundamental research. So that's the real hardcore scientist part of me. So we're mostly interested in whether or not theories still apply, you know, the old school theories that criminologists came up with years and years ago in the pre-digital era. Can we still use these theories to explain cybercrimes or even to stop cybercrime offenders? Uh, Within the Hague University of Applied Sciences, we can identify the problems of today and we can start thinking about using theories of the past to uh, help people uh, solve these problems of today. 
Because in the cyber world, we tend to want to develop new tools, new interventions, but sometimes you also have to try and look at what we already know of traditional crimes, of offline crimes, and see if they still uh, relate to cyber crimes. Because if we know more about that, then you can have solutions today, because we already have solutions for lots of crime problems or solutions, interventions. I'm sure that we can use lots of these traditional interventions for cyber too. Having said that, we should of course, also try to find new ways because cyber is not totally the same as offline, but there are also many similarities. On the other hand, I work for the University of Applied Sciences in The Hague, and there we really try to help small and medium enterprises with their day-to-day problems regarding cybersecurity. So what we do in The Hague is we talk a lot with shop owners, with people that represent a number of companies to identify the problems that they have today. And we try to see at NCR, for example, if we can build our our research in this way that we can actually not only have real scientific outcomes that are very good to publish in peer-reviewed articles or that we can discuss amongst peers in international conferences, but that we can actually translate that knowledge to something that the, the people that are the directors of companies or whatever can use every day to protect themselves. And that's very hard because our worlds are, it's starting to get more intertwined, but it's not yet because it doesn't always match because a lot of research is long-term, which is very important. So what we always try to do at NSCR now is also think about the short-term elements, but it's also the other way around. How do you help um, small and medium enterprises uh, with your research? As researchers, we try to identify the real problems because all of these enterprises have their own problems and we try to see whether or not there are trends within them. So if you can identify the most important threats or trends, you can actually build a research line based on that. So for example, what we do now is we know that in the Netherlands, one in five of every business owner has been a victim of a cyber attack over the past 12 months. So that's 20% of business owners. We definitely know that it's a huge problem. The main problem with cyber attacks is that you know what happens today, but you don't know what will happen next year or the year after. So it's very hard to protect yourself. So what we really try to teach these small and medium enterprises is to have a resilient strategy so that whatever happens in the future, they will be able to react on it. If you're resilient, then you're not getting out of business because of one attack. You're able to to continue your business after the attack. And this is just a matter of, for example, having different scenarios ready for if something happens, who should I call? What should I do? Uh, did I back up my, uh, my important files? And, and just real easy stuff that everybody should know, but nobody's doing at the moment. So we're doing a number of pilots in the Netherlands to gain more insight into the actual state of cyber resilience at the moment. And of course, we're finding that it's not really good. And you find uh, in your other research of the human factor that this is a trait that complacency that makes people more vulnerable to cyber attacks. It's a big part of it, because if you're not aware that you yourself can be a victim, then you're not going to take the right measures to protect yourself. But the problem with cyber is that it's so big. You know, it's not only hacking, it's also phishing, uh, it's ransomware. It's all sorts of other kind of attacks that you can suffer. So there's not only one type of crime for which you have to protect yourself. It's lots of crimes. And that's the second problem. So it's not only not visible, but it's all sorts of crimes that might happen to you. So you might be able to teach your staff not to click on a phishing mail. Well, that helps to phishing mails, but you know it, it might not help protect you from a hacker that really wants to hack into your organization. And 
And we see lots of people coming to us saying, hey, uh, I really appreciate that you're doing research into uh, cybersecurity in small and medium enterprises. Now just tell me what to do. So they want a solution right now. And the state of research is not there yet. You know, We only started doing research into the human factor a couple of years ago. And small and medium enterprises are, I think, one of the, the areas that nobody has done any real empirical uh, research into. So we know nothing about lots of basic stuff. So I always have to tell to the people that really want to be helped, okay, you know, you can be part of the experiments we do. So you, you will be the first one to get new knowledge. But I can't help you today. Yeah, I can tell you that you need to have your software up to date, that you need to back up your files. But these are just the real things that everybody should be doing already. And this is the third problem, that even if I have awareness and I see the crime and I come to you, you, you tell me, sorry, I can't help you now. Yeah, exactly. There are lots of people working either in small and medium enterprises or are the owner of a, a SME. However, when you're too busy being an entrepreneur and a researcher shows up, saying, okay, I can help you, but you need to invest your time and energy in it. And you can see that it's a bridge too far for, for uh, uh, lots of these uh, owners. The good thing is, on the other side, is because there are so many of these owners that we still can get enough people to actually help us with our experiments. And you can see that they get excited because they actually see the latest results. They get to talk to experienced researchers. We can give them all sorts of tips. And even the students that we have who do either a technical study or a more social sciences study, they can actually help lots of these business owners because they know much more about uh, cyber than these people themselves. What would be your top suggestions for a business that wants to deal with the threats of cybercrime? But make sure that, you know, you have a couple of scenarios and it's not, you don't have to have an entire policy document of 50 pages. Just have one page with, okay, what might happen? And what should I do? What should I do if my systems are down? Who do I call? Who is in charge of our IT? Dr. Ratger Leukveld. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Computer systems have people at both ends. The people who built them and the people who use them. In cybersecurity systems, the people who build them have to take into account two kinds of users, their clients and the hackers. Problem is, security systems are not always planned and built with humans in mind which infuriates our next guest. My name is Benoit Dupont. I'm a professor of criminology at the uh, Université de Montréal in Canada at the International Center for Comparative Criminology. And I'm the holder of the Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity. I study hackers. I study the uh, social organization of hackers. And I also study the response by private and public organization to security challenges online. And you have uh, an issue with uh, cybercrime and cybersecurity being treated as a mere technical issue. Yes, and, and that's a common problem in cybersecurity research at the moment. We consider that cybersecurity is a technical issue first and foremost, and that only by building uh, better systems we'll be able to fix it. And I dispute it. I think it's a, it's a human, it's a social issue as well. So we need to take that into account and we need not to leave cybersecurity only in the hands of computer scientists. Actually, they probably uh, created the problem in the first place, so we need to help them fix it, and we need to engage social scientists and, and legal scholars a lot more on this issue to produce uh, more holistic uh, uh, responses to the problems we're facing at the moment. Don't you think that making systems less prone to uh, problems, to hacks, would be a better solution than trying to fix all humankind, all computer users? Clearly, the way systems are being built at the moment 
is not conducive to uh, security at all. Uh, the way they're being built is they consider humans as machines. They consider that humans should be adopting these super complicated passwords, and it's cognitively impossible for humans. We need technology to be a bit more uh, cognizant of the shortcomings of humans and to help them together fix these shortcomings and, and uh, to produce uh, stronger security. At the moment, the systems, they are being designed by people who don't take those uh, social and psychological considerations into account. And then after that, of course, they claim that the humans are the problem and that we need to fix humans. I don't think that's the right uh, solution because we'll never be able to fix humans. We need to design machines that are able to better work with humans. And we also need to understand that it's not like in public health where um, germs take decades to adapt and to adjust. You know, we're facing a manufactured and a human threat. And every single time you design a stronger system, another human is going to design a way to bypass the system. So it's a never-ending race. And we also need to take that into account. Do you also take into account that hackers themselves are humans and that they have flaws in your research? Absolutely. They make uh, uh, very strong mistakes. For example, in my own research, we found that even when uh, the police is not present, there is very, very limited trust uh, between hackers. They're very easily arguing between each other and launching into conflicts and protracted disputes. Uh, so I think that uh, uh, there is a lot we can learn from there in terms of how we disrupt those communities when they're uh, responsible for the design and distribution of malicious software. I've actually read that uh, one way of fighting drug uh, trafficking on the darknet is giving the sellers lower ratings. So instead of trying to prevent them from, from selling the drugs, you just help other people. These are not good drugs interjecting uh, chaos into that system. Absolutely. You're just introducing uncertainty. So you're uh, creating fake uh, identities and you're rating the, uh, the main sellers very poorly or uh, arguing that they haven't delivered the stuff that you bought. Uh, what you can also say is that uh, maybe they are uh, police informants, so no one will want to deal with them and then they'll be losing uh, market share. And because there are only a very limited number of uh, uh, prolific uh, uh, drug uh, uh, distributors, then it's going to disrupt the market for a while. Uh, so it's not a perfect solution, but it's probably going to do a lot of uh, uh, damage on the market without having to arrest anyone. This is actually, again, using people's uh, weaknesses. You're actually conning people into not falling uh, in traps. But I'm thinking, is this the right way to do this? Because somebody actually did this with one of the botnet attacks. So they distributed a version that blocked the attack from occurring. Yeah, so I think that when you're using these manipulation techniques or this um, uh, social or human factor incentives, you have to be very careful about what you're doing. There is an, uh, you know, an ethical dimension to it as well. You, know, you cannot manipulate people even if it's for their own good. So you have to uh, play on their strength. You have to make them more resistant against the uh, urge to click on any link that will uh, very often be uh, associated with malicious uh, software. You have to make them more aware of what's happening out there. And you have to explain to them the benefits of being more aware and being more skeptical about anything they receive in their email. Professor Benoit Dupont, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Situational crime prevention can reduce the probability of cybercrimes happening. It could also be used to convince hackers to leave your systems 
even after they've already infiltrated them. My name is David Maimon, and I'm a professor in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice in the University of Maryland. What is situational crime prevention, your um, topic of uh, research? So situational crime prevention is essentially an approach taken by criminologists, law officers, in order to try and reduce the probability of crime to take place in a specific place. Pre-criming most of the time, trying to prevent crime from taking place um, in a specific location. Not too many people are talking about the progression of, of criminal event because it's very difficult to measure it in the offline environment, but this is something that we do in cyberspace, yeah. You can think about um, the room we're sitting in right now, for instance. If you want to reduce the probability of somebody stealing something from this uh, room, then you're probably going to have a lock on the door. That is a classic approach of situational crime prevention. We think that we can do similar things in the context of cyberspace, trying to not only prevent cyber attacks from occurring, but also from progressing. The way we're doing this is by looking at different computing network configurations, trying to figure out what will make hackers, what will make potential victims tick, and simply test it, running experiments in cyberspace. Configuring the computing environment, for instance, in a way that will launch warning banners into uh, hackers and victims and see how they respond to it, emulating surveillance processes in those computers. This is essentially what we're trying to do in order to understand the different circumstances that will allow us to reduce the probability of crime to take place uh, on those computing platforms. But to prevent crime, you have to first let a crime happen and analyze it, understand how it was done. So there was at least one victim. That's right. Um, in my research, I'm less interested in preventing cybercrime from happening. I'm more interested in the development of cybercrime. So you have somebody on your system. What can you do in order to make sure that um, he doesn't take all your private information? What you can do in order to contain him, restrain his behavior in such a way that he will not cause a lot of damage to your computer? And ideally, what you can do in order to show him the way out without him even knowing that you're doing this. This is what I'm more focused on, more interested in. We're not talking about remediation. We're talking about the progression of a criminal event. I'm talking about mitigation. You have somebody on your system. What you can do in order to make sure that he doesn't cause a lot of damage. How does mitigation work? Well, it's, it's a really good question. We still don't know a whole lot about mitigation. The way I envision mitigation um, is through configuration of the computer environment in such a way that will allow you faster detection of any attack on the system, so attack that happens on the system, as well as constraining, restraining the online behavior of an attacker on your system, uh, email account, uh, computer system, server, smartphone, whatever you have in mind. In order for us to know more about mitigation, we need to conduct more experiments. And during the last seven years or so, we've been uh, heavily involved in mitigation research. We have some really cool findings, findings that we were able to produce in the United States, here in Israel as well. We collaborated with folks uh, in the Hebrew U, deployed our honeypots on several infrastructures here in Israel, and um, simply tried to figure out what will work with respect to uh, scaring away the hackers. And what have you learned? We published uh, quite a lot on this topic. We have a paper where we talked about the effect of warning on hackers' behavior. In our first project, we showed that sending a warning banner to hackers would shorten the duration of an attack. It was like an alarm. You hear the alarm, you leave the house you broke into. 
sort of, yeah. Um, what we think happened is that it alerts consciousness with respect to uh, the illegitimate behavior you're involved in. When somebody is sending this warning, uh, you're aware of the fact that you're doing something illegal. Uh, we also find that depending on your skill level, the warning will restrict the commands you type in the system. Oh, wow. Which is really interesting, I think. This is a paper that we just published in 2017 in Criminology and Public Policy with uh, a few of my students. And we actually show that if you're a less skilled hacker, that you're more deterrable by the warning than uh, you know if you're more skilled. We have a few experiments where we... Um, with the ambiguity with respect to the presence of surveillance in the system. We find that clear messages of surveillance or clear indication for surveillance on the system increases the probability of hackers to try and clean their tracks after themselves. We also find that in the presence of surveillance banners, hackers are less likely to type commands on the system. We have several experiments uh, with the honeypots. Uh, we have an experiment that we're in here in Israel where we started talking to hackers when they attacked our system. And we have some really uh, anecdotal findings uh, from that research. We actually have videos that uh, maybe we can post on the website as well, a video uh, of a conversation we had with an attacker. The systems we use for that experiment were Linux. And what we did was, uh, once we had an attack, we simply asked the hacker, who are you? Why are you here? In that specific video I have in mind, the hacker actually answers us. He types in trying to ask us who we are, and then he deletes it. That's an indication that we have a human on the system uh, on the other end, and that you can definitely work with him, right, uh, and, and try to mitigate the consequence of an attack. Yeah, so these are the major findings that, that we have from the list of experiments that we have. We ran the experiments in China as well. So in China, we work with a university. We try to figure out whether the content of a warning that you send to a hacker will influence the probability of them trying to clean the tracks after themselves. Microcopy for data protection, that's yeah. amazing. We varied the content of, of the warning. We had a, like an official warning, like the, the warning that NIST in, in the United States will want every organization to apply. Then we had a friendly message from the admin, went along the line of, dear hacker, we congratulate you for accessing our network, but we must ask you to leave right now, overworked uh, IT admin. And then we had a, a severe warning where we simply threw a banner at the, the hacker saying that uh, if he will leave right now, then there will be no consequences for the act. We're not going to collect any information. We're not going to retaliate and so on. What we found was that once you marry detection with severe sanction, these guys are more likely to clean their tracks after themselves. So the severe warning that we had worked very nice in terms of nudging the hacker to behave in a predictable way and clean tracks after themselves. The friendly warning didn't really work. I'm actually putting together a grant uh, uh, proposal with one of my colleagues from NYU and, uh, yeah, and, and simply trying to figure out whether we can produce generalized behavior or understand whether hackers behave similarly across those different platforms as well as whether we can mitigate the attacks similarly or differently on those different platforms. David Maimon, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Lex Kibernetica. I'm Itoke Nan. See you in cyberspace. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.